Welcome to the Commission Podcast, a place to hear talks, teaching, and conversations from across the Commission network. We're back for 2019 with brand new conversations, as well as talks and sermons from the Commission archives. We're starting off with a talk from our latest event, the Commission Women's Day, which took place in January 2019. Today we hear from Barbara Sherwood. Barbara is part of the church family of St Andrew's Chelsea. She served with her husband James as a missionary in Nigeria for many years and continues to visit churches across Africa. Barbara was speaking on God's incomparable grace and looking at Ephesians 1 verses 3 to 23. Well, thank you, Liz. You've helped us this morning to see God in his greatness. Our God is an incomparable, not incomparable. <laughs> as an incomparable creator, an incomparable ruler, and the one who deserves incomparable worship. She's helped us see that our God is a tender shepherd who carries us and renews the strength of the weary. We're really grateful for that. What we want to do in this session is to think more about how we know God's incomparable power and tender care now as 21st century women and how it should impact our lives. Liz has helped us to see how a right view of God deserves our worship and how it's what we need to overcome our fears and to persevere in our struggles. But how else does this incomparable God affect our lives now? And how does knowing Christ, in whom God has come to his people to rescue them, impact our lives? Well, I wonder what was on your mind as you came here this morning. Maybe for some of us, it was worry or perhaps despair about the mess of our world. Brexit, President Trump, China's increasing power, financial insecurity, endless wars, crime and violence on our streets. It's pretty depressing, isn't it? Maybe it was more personal things, some broken relationship, or sickness, or some other struggle in your own life, or the life of someone close to you. Maybe it's just the daily grind and busyness of life. For some of us, it's perhaps long, lonely days when we wish we could do more. Maybe it's our successes and happiness. But whatever it is, what difference does knowing this great God make to our lives now? I think Paul's letter to the Ephesians helps us to see that. He teaches us that those who trust Christ are changed by our knowledge of this incomparable God and his immeasurable grace. See, the question which Isaiah didn't fully answer, although he hinted at it, was why and how such a sovereign creator and ruler can be a gentle shepherd to people who do doubt him and who do turn to other things for security and protection, to other gods. Isaiah hinted at it. The very first thing he told them was to tell God's people that their sin had been paid for. This God of incomparable power is also a God of immeasurable grace. And those two things are interwoven throughout Ephesians. Particularly, we'll look at that in this first chapter. You'll notice that the very first thing Paul says after kind of saying hello... Um, He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He bursts out in praise. 
Verses 3 to 14, which were read for us just now, are in fact in the Greek just one long breathless sentence. It's just as well. It's hard enough to read them with sentence breaks in. But it's as if the words just pour out of Paul, fast and furious. He can't stop and take breath when he thinks about God's greatness and his great work for us. And that's very characteristic of Paul. Again and again through his letters, he stops and breaks off. He can't help himself but pour out his praise to God, a God who deserves incomparable worship. But Paul was in prison when he wrote this letter. Chapter 3, verse 1, and chapter 4, verse 1 tell us that. So he wasn't bursting forth in praise because his life was comfortable and everything was going well. Actually, his life had never been comfortable and easy since he first trusted Christ. So it wasn't anything to do with circumstances. It was simply that God is incomparable and a God of immeasurable grace. And when Paul remembered that, he couldn't help but burst out in praise. Did you notice that phrase that comes up again and again? Everything is to the praise of God's glorious grace. What's God's glory? Well, glory is a shining forth of the greatness of the thing it is. It's a shining forth of his greatness and goodness. Everything God is and does shouts out how great and how good he is. The passage Liz helped us to look at in Isaiah reminds us that we see that glory in God's creation. We see that in his rule over all of history, working out his purposes. Paul starts off by praising God and reminding them of the glory we see in Christ and in God's work through Christ for us, his immeasurable grace. Let's very briefly look at what verses 3 to 14 say. First of all, God has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Uh, Just to say the heavenly realms here refers to the realms which exist outside this world, We don't know much about them, but there were spiritual forces. The devil and all his allies are at work. What we do know is that Christ has triumphed over them and he reigns even over the spiritual forces now and forever because he's a God of incomparable power. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. In other words, God has given us everything we could possibly need for life as his children, in all of the mess. And it's simply because of his kindness and generosity to people who put their trust in other things and run after other gods. And all of it comes to us in Christ. That little phrase, in Christ or through Christ, crops up again and again and again through this passage and throughout the letter. Christ died to pay the penalty for our sin, to take away our sin. And Christ rose again. And in a very real sense, when we put our trust in him, we die with him to our sin. And we rise with him to new life. We share all of his privileges now and fully for eternity. And Paul reminds us what those privileges are. God chose us before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. He chose us to be those who can live in his presence because we are made holy, made perfect in Christ. 
Verse 5 tells us he predestined us to be adopted as sons, to be made his children with all the privileges of sonship because of his choice through Christ. Our daughter and her husband adopted a little girl a couple of years ago. It's very real to us. Little child who had no hope is now their dearly loved child. That was their choice with the help of social services. But now we relate to God as, our, as dearly loved children, sharing in all his riches. Verse 7 tells us he's redeemed us. He's rescued us from our slavery to sin and death through Christ. And he's forgiven us all of our sin, all that we've done in the past, all that we will do in the future. Verses 9 and 10 tell us he's made his purposes known to us. We don't need to wonder what this world is about. God has told us. He's shown us what he's doing in our world and for eternity, which is to bring everything in heaven and on earth together under Christ in unity and wholeness. That's what this life is about. And verses 13 and 14, he's given us his Holy Spirit, he himself living in us by his Spirit, guaranteeing that we belong to him now and that he will keep us, he will hold us fast for life with him in eternity. And can you see how it's all God's incomparable power and his immeasurable grace? It's God's incomparable power which has achieved this for us. It's not something we did. He chose us to be his children. He predestined us for sonship. He opened our eyes to hear our ears to hear, our eyes to see. He brought us to Christ. He raised us up with Christ. And verses 11 and 13 tells us he works out everything according to his will. He's utterly in control. He guarantees our inheritance. He accomplishes everything he purposes. That is incomparable power. But it's also immeasurable grace. He tells us he predestined us in love to be his sons. This was his pleasure. It was because of his glorious grace, which he freely gave us. Just listen to how Paul piles up the words. He lavished the riches of his grace on us according to his good pleasure. And perhaps the most extraordinary thing, it comes to us through the one he loves, through his dearly loved son, who took our penalty. We are loved like Jesus. That should humble us, that such a great God would give and do all of that for us. And so it should cause us, like Paul, to burst out in praise to him, which is what I think we should do now before we go any further. Let's just stop and thank him. Our incomparable God, we thank you that in your awesome greatness, you care for us. We thank you that you are that tender shepherd who laid down his life to make us your sheep. And we thank you that making us your children, you have given us everything we need for life now and a glorious future with you. And it's all because of your love and immeasurable grace. We praise you and thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.
what about our fears and worries, our hopes and joys, and the things that fill our lives and preoccupy us right now? Well, Paul goes on in the rest of the chapter, which is what I want to look at particularly, to tell them what he longs and prays for them in the light of this wonderful truth and how he prays knowing this truth will shape them. You see, he starts his prayer in verse 15, for this reason, which is referring back to all that God is and has done for us in Christ. And three things I want to pull out. First of all, God, Paul prays to God, our glorious Father, that we, his children, will know him better. Look at verse 17. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. That's what B met, wasn't it? That spirit of wisdom and revelation which opened her eyes and her ears. Paul is praying that those who know Christ will know him better as God opens our eyes and opens our ears. Everything that we have and everything that we need is ours in Christ. So the more we know Christ, the more we will enjoy every spiritual blessing and have everything we need to live for him. Um, our daughter Jo some of you know her, met and got engaged to her husband, Paul, while she was a medical student in Bristol. For over a few years, she'd begun to know his love for her, his kindness and generosity, his help and strength and his commitment to her. And she knew something of the life that she would have with him when they were married. He had a beautiful flat. He had a good job. He'd shown already that he loved her and would look after her. She knew what was coming, in one sense. So once they were engaged, she didn't really bother to spend much time with him. <laughs> she carried on living just as she had been up until then. She kept trying to make her current flat, which was a bit grotty, as nice as it could be. She kept on spending most of her time working to get the best grade she could, so she could get the best job she could, not really minding where that was, as long as it was a good, well-paid job. And she kept on spending whatever spare time she had with her friends. She carried on much as she had done before and as all her other friends were doing. Nonsense. Of course she didn't. Now that she knew him and in a very real sense belonged to him, the thing she really wanted was to know him better and to spend time with him. And so she reshaped her life because of that. She wanted to spend time with him more than she wanted to make her flat nice. She wanted to spend time with him more than she wanted to work to get the best grades, to get the best job. And she was also much less bothered about the frustrations of her life, the grotty flat, the friendships which were difficult, because she knew what was ahead of her. She knew Paul, and she wanted to get to know him better. And she also wanted us to know how great he was. Well, this is exactly what Paul was praying for the Ephesian Christians. He prayed that God's Holy Spirit would show them even more of this glorious Christ. A husband who will never disappoint us, never turn out to be not quite what we'd hoped. 
In verse 17, he prayed God would give the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that they would know him better. And he wanted this to be their concern. He wanted that growing knowledge of Christ to change them. We've glimpsed something of this incomparable God. So is knowing him more going to be a priority for us? We belong to him as his dearly loved children. We have a guaranteed wonderful future with him. All of our past sin and all of our future sin is paid for by his death. So are we getting to know him better? You know, when we come across something glorious, a beautiful painting or a great book or a recipe or even a builder, Jackie, we want people to know about it, but we also want to keep coming back to it again and again. We want to go and see that painting again. We want to go back to that place. We want to know more of it. Well, is that how we feel about Christ? And are we making it a priority to get to know him better? We do that as we come to his word, his word about Jesus. And as we talk to him and ask him to show us more of himself and to help us. Or is that something that actually we just give a short time to each day or on a Sunday if we're not too busy or tired? And what is it that distracts us from doing it or squeezes it out? Maybe it's actually our dreaded mobile phones and the apps on it. Maybe it's looking at social media or just searching the web. Maybe it's socializing with other people. Maybe it's seeing that getting on in life is more important. And if that's the case, what could we do to make sure it happens? Maybe delete an app. Maybe if we're spending time, leave the phone in another room or just switch it off so that we're not distracted. Maybe cancel the subscription to that magazine that's so enticing. Maybe just have a different playlist on your phone so that what you're filling your mind and your head with is truth about God. What about our family if we're married? I speak to myself as well. Do I get to the end of the day and actually I'm too tired and too frazzled and too distracted to pick up God's word with my husband or my children? Am I showing them that learning about our incomparable God is really, really important and precious? And perhaps another question, if we have children, are they too tired and distracted at the end of the day by all the activities they're doing? Are we actually communicating to them that grades and exams and all the extra activities they're doing and the friendships they have are more important than getting to know Christ better? Should we change something? And when we do pick up our Bible or come to church, are we coming asking God, please help me to know Jesus better as I come? Or is it just a routine? You see, the Christian life is first and foremost knowing God in Christ. Are we longing for this and praying for it and making adjustments in our lives to do so? Paul prays that we will know him better. But the second thing he prays is that we will understand God's purposes. Look at verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you know the hope to which he's called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. In the light of who God is 
and what he's doing. He wants them to know God's purposes now and for the future. Because understanding his purposes changes the way I'll see my life now and the way I see all of history. So what are his purposes? Well, in chapter 1, verse 4, he told them that God had chosen them, God has chosen us, to be holy and blameless in his sight. We've seen that in Christ, he's forgiven our sin and cleansed us and made us able to stand in his presence and enjoy relationship with him because we're in Christ. But let's go back to my daughter, Jo. The more she got to know Paul, the more she understood what he loved and what he didn't love. She learned to appreciate rugby because Paul loves rugby. She learned to be tidier and have less clutter because Paul hates clutter. The more she got to know him, the more she knew what pleases him and displeases him, and she wanted to change to please him. In chapters 2 and 3, in two and three Paul uses the metaphor of growing to be a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. When Joe and Paul bought their first home together, it was very different from what it is now. There was purple and gold paint everywhere, apologies if you like that, shaggy pile carpets, boldly patterned wallpaper, and a grease-covered kitchen. Gradually, over the years, it's changed. There's now no purple or gold, no garish wallpaper, no shaggy carpets, much less grease in the kitchen, and much less clutter. It's becoming a home fit for them. That's God's purpose for our lives, that we become more and more pleasing to Christ and like Christ. And Paul tells them that he works everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. In verse 11, the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. That means that absolutely everything that happens in this world and in our lives is for God's purposes, whether it's good or bad. That means that God's purpose in my promotion is not my advancement and a better life, but that I exalt Jesus and become like Jesus, that in this role I live under him under his rule and for his glory. And it also means that God's purpose in my redundancy or not getting that job I wanted is I learn more of what it means to live as his adopted child, secure in him, submissive to his plans, trusting him for his glory. In chapter 1, verse 10, Paul also told them that God's purpose is to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. He does this as people come to Christ and trust him and become his children. He'll finish it when Jesus comes again and everything is fully under the rule of the Lord Jesus. But where is God working out that purpose now? Well, the big thrust of Ephesians is that God is working that out in the church. That's where we see him uniting very diverse people under Christ in his one body. In our little church in Chelsea, we have fabulously wealthy Chelsea people and council estate people. We have people from multiple nationalities. We 
have people who are in their 80s and people who are in their 20s. And he's uniting us together in one church under Christ. That's where he's demonstrating his power to all the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. The front page of the Times magazine last week, I don't know if any of you take it, pictured a family of five. I don't know if any of you recognize them with the headline, the most influential family in Britain. I'm very sorry for them, but I'd never heard of them or seen them before. (laughs) Apparently, they're the Chapman family who live in Norwich. Don't know if any of you know this. They have more than 21 million followers on social media. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? But they're not the most influential family, not in God's book. In God's book, our little churches, his church, are the most influential family, not only in this country, but in the whole of the world, because that is where God is bringing everything together under Christ now. So that truth should change the way we think about church and being part of church. If God's church is what he's about in this world and for eternity, how much is it what our lives are about? Is church something I do, that I give my spare time to if I'm not too tired and there aren't other things I'd rather do? Am I doing all I can to be part of church, to grow together with God's people, whatever they're like, so that we become like Christ? And so that we show what Christ is like, who he is, to people who aren't yet part of it. So that we can pray and work together to help people who aren't in church see how glorious Christ is and how being in his eternal family is wonderful and eternal. In Paul's time, the main divisions in the church were between Jews and Gentiles. They were massive divisions and between slave people and free people. And God brought them together because all of them came into his family simply by trusting Christ. They were people who otherwise would never have met and worked together. We're much more diverse in our churches now, but we do come from very different backgrounds. No doubt there are some of us here this morning who are pro-Brexit and some who are anti-Brexit. We'll have different likes and dislikes and different ways of doing things and different backgrounds and experiences. But he has united us together in his family under Christ because of his immeasurable grace. And so he wants us to live as church, to be distinctive for him as a people who, although we're very diverse, genuinely love each other. And he wants us to be people who live with a distinctive integrity in every area of our lives, at home and at work and among our non-Christian friends and colleagues and neighbours. People who acknowledge and love Christ and live under his rule and for his purposes and want to show how glorious he is to the people around us. So our lives should be about his purpose, living together as his people to demonstrate the power of his gospel and the glory of Jesus and belonging to him. I imagine there are some netball players here. Well, imagine you were chosen to be part of the England netball team, doing pretty well at the moment. Belonging to that team would change your life. 
It would mean you shared that team's goals and you committed your time and your energy to them above everything else. You'd be working out, watching your diet, making sure you were at training sessions and available for matches. You'd be getting to know the rest of the team. You'd be learning to work with them. You'd be studying the game, finding out about your opponents, listening to your coach and so on. Being part of that team would reshape your life. How is being God's family shaping our lives and his purpose for us? Are we simply investing in this life and getting the most out of it? Or are we investing in God's people, his and our eternal family, loving and serving those who belong to it and doing all we can to bring others into it through Christ? Are we just getting on with those in church we naturally get on with? Or are we relating to people who we find more difficult? Who do we talk to at church? Who do we phone up during the week? Who do we visit? Who do we pray for? Who do we invite into our homes or help out in practical ways? How much do we mind when things aren't done quite the way we do them at church? Do we get on board and work with people nonetheless for the good of the church and to get the gospel to those outside it? When our neighbors or colleagues or relatives see our lives, do they see something distinctive and glorious about being God's people? Do they see God's power at work in us? Are our lives very different from theirs in what we value? and what we want, and what we give our time to, and what drives us? Do they see how glorious Christ is? And do they see how that shapes our longings and our plans, and what we do with our money, and our possessions, and our time? What our aspirations are for our children? What gives us satisfaction and security? Do they see anything different in the way we respond to trouble and disappointment? Do they see anything different in the way we respond to success? Do they see distinctive speech and sexual behavior and attitude to material things and submission to authority? They're all things Paul talks about in the rest of the book. Paul also wants them to know the hope for the future that we have in Christ. Verse 18, he prays, that we would know, they would know, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Notice that it's his inheritance in the saints. In other words, this glorious, incomparable God has chosen us to share in the joy of his new creation. He delights to do that. He wants us to share his joy in his new creation with everything under Christ for eternity. We have a certain eternal future with Christ in that perfect new creation. You see, the things this world values and runs after aren't what God has saved us for, and they can't give us eternal blessings. In Christ, we've been given every spiritual blessing and the promise of a perfect eternal future with him. And so we can sit loose to the things of this world. We can be less preoccupied with them and less disappointed when we don't have them. Think of my engaged daughter, Jo, again. 
she minded much less about the gloomy flat where things often broke and got spoiled because she knew what was ahead and she was rejoicing in the certainty of that and investing in that. Are we shaped by that eternal future that God has? God's told us that his purpose, in chapter 2, he says his purpose is that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Jesus. That's what he wants for us. But we do find it a struggle, don't we? This life clamors for our attention. Our lives and our churches are often messy and hard work because everything's not under Christ yet. It can be discouraging, which brings us to the third thing that Paul wants and prays for them. Verse 19, he prays that they will know God's incomparably great power for us who believe. He prays that they'll know it and trust it. I guess many of us made New Year's resolutions this year, although I confess I'm too old, I don't do it anymore. (laughs) And I guess that not many of us are consistently meeting all of them. What's the problem? It's probably not the resolutions. The resolutions themselves are probably good things to aim for. The problem is our inability, our lack of power to keep them. Remember Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians while he was in prison. He could so easily have been discouraged. How was God going to build his church and grow his church when he, Paul, the apostle commissioned to take the gospel to the Gentiles, was in prison? But Paul wasn't discouraged. He knew that God's purposes are unstoppable because he uses all of his incomparable power to achieve them. That was part of the reason he wrote this letter to the Ephesian church, who saw the the Apostle Paul in prison. He wanted them to know that God's work will go on. It didn't depend on Paul's circumstances, but on God. And he wanted them to have this same confidence that whatever their circumstances, God was at work to achieve his purposes. And he reminded them just how incomparable that power is. Just as God showed his immeasurable grace to us in Jesus' death, he's shown his incomparable power to us in Christ's resurrection and ascension. When Christ died, he conquered the power of sin and death. Satan accuses us, rightly, of our sin and says you deserve to die. Jesus died so that Satan has no power over us. He cannot condemn us to death. In Christ, there is no condemnation. Yes, our bodies will die, but we will live with Christ forever. The devil is utterly opposed to God's purposes and God's work. He reminded them of that in chapter 6. But he's been defeated. Although he's still at work attacking God's people and God's work, he can't win because Christ is now at God's right hand, seated because his work is finished, and ruling over everything. And again, Paul piles up the language to tell us how incomparable Christ's power is. Look at verses 19 to 22. He's not just above everything, he's far above everything. 
He's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. He's far above every title that can be given. The most powerful, prestigious position that anyone could have in this world wouldn't come anywhere near Christ's power and his position. And it's not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. His has incomparable power over everything. But perhaps the most remarkable thing is little passage in verse 19 is that Paul reminds them that this power is for us who believe. His incomparably great power for us who believe. The church is where God is working out his purposes. He's demonstrating that his purpose is unstoppable and glorious. He reminds them that the church is his body. He's the head of the church. And notice that little phrase again, verse 22. God placed all things under Jesus' feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body. Our very life comes from him. All his fullness is for us, every spiritual blessing, all of his resources. It's breathtaking. Christ constantly supplies his church with everything we need so that he can demonstrate to all the powers of this world and all the spiritual realms his inglorious, unstoppable purpose through Christ and the gospel. So what about me? Maybe some of us are young Christians and we're wondering, how am I ever going to keep going? Maybe some of us are older Christians and we've perhaps rather given up on fighting that particular sin in our life. I've been battling it for years and I've rather got used to it and given up. No, our fight with the devil is not hopeless. As we remember Jesus' great victory on the cross and his incomparable power for us, we'll be strengthened to keep fighting our sin, to keep standing firm in the gospel, to keep persevering when life is hard because he will hold us fast. He will get us there. What about your church? I know sometimes our church feels pretty weak and insignificant. We're about 50 people. We've been about 50 people for seven or eight years. Is our church weak and insignificant? No, it's not. It's what God is doing to bring people together under Christ. He does it through the church. God's work in his church is the most significant thing in this world. Far more significant than Brexit or the world economy. Far more significant than the success of my business or my family or anything else. Far more significant than the job I did get or didn't get the relationship I do have, or the relationship that didn't work out. Far more significant than whether our church is small and messy, or big and flourishing, because it's all part of his eternal purpose, because of his immeasurable grace and his incomparable power. So don't be discouraged. Keep lifting up your eyes to this great God and his great purposes. Keep going, trusting his power, to accomplish his purposes. What do we need? We need to take time to get to know this God better, 
to reflect on his immeasurable grace and his incomparable power and to let it change the way that we live. It's right that we do that humbly, but we also need to remember that God continues to give grace and forgiveness to the humble and that through his spirit living in us, he does give us the power to persevere. He will keep working to change us to his glory individually and together to make us more and more a people who show the watching world just how incomparable he is. So let's pray as Paul does, that we will know Christ more and more, and that he will help us to bring every part of our life under his rule. Let's pray that we will rejoice in his purposes and in the glorious certainty that he will accomplish them. Let's pray he'll help us to bring every part of our church's life under his rule, and that we'll do everything we can to show his glory to the people around us. And as we do it, let's pray that we will trust his incomparable power for us and through us to accomplish that purpose and to keep us going. He will hold us fast. Thanks for listening to the Commission podcast. For more on Commission events, go to commission.org events.